Hey, and welcome to Greenfish Blue Oceans. I'm your host, Maureen Berry. On today's program, C is for clams and climate change. I'm going to talk about farm clams, wild clams, shopping tips, recipe ideas, and the future of clams, specifically Pacific giant clams, and clam composition as it relates to ocean acidification. That will segue right into the climate change part of the program, and that specifically is about water. All right, here we go. I'm going to ask you this, and you think about it. Did you know that farmed clams make up 90% of the world's clam consumption? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Terrific news, in fact. Clams are easy on the environment, they're managed efficiently, and they actually improve the water quality since they are considered filter feeders. Farm clams are raised on beaches and then raked, shoveled, or hand-selected. That would be kind of a cool job. Grown in suspended nets in the open ocean or in bays. They're farmed in raceways or raised on cages in the ocean. As a result, farmed clams get the high five from sustainable seafood recommendations like Seafood Watch and Environmental Defense Fund. You're going to find clams at the market in a variety of ways. Clams are canned, frozen, either clam meat or in the shell, or you can buy live clams, either fresh shucked meat or in the shell. So how do you know what to buy? Well, as always, your buying decision kind of depends on two factors. One, what's available in the market, and two, what you can afford. So if you're going to go for live clams, in the United States anyway, you'll probably see little necks, cherry stones, or sometimes called middle neck, and chowder clams. Those are the most popular consumed clams and will probably be on restaurant menus as well. Then there are soft shell clams like gooey duck, razor clam, and steamers. So those primarily will be seen on like the east or west coast or like in a fancy restaurant. Uh, We certainly don't see anything like that here in western Kentucky. When I shop for clams, I'm either shopping in the in the canned clam aisle or in the frozen section. Um, my local Kroger does not carry clams, and Walmart has a very good sustainable seafood program. So don't be shy to shop at Walmart for seafood. Clams are low in fat, high in vitamin B12, C, iron, omega-3s, and protein. They're like the perfect little food. So how could you like not want to have a clam in your life? They take little time to cook, um, and in fact, overcooking, like with most seafood, just makes them chewy and rubbery, so you'll know if you've overcooked. Canned meat and frozen clams are already cooked. You only need to reheat them, and then there's no reason to thaw out a frozen clam. In fact, they cook much better from frozen. If you buy live clams at the market, look for tight-lipped, unbroken clams. Any clams that have a gaping open mouth um, in terms of a hard shell... Those clams are not live anymore. They're dead. Now, if you get your bag of clams home and you see a couple in there that are open, you can just tap them, the shell, on a hard surface. And if the clam closes shut, that means it's still alive. If it doesn't, just discard it. Put that sucker in the freezer until your garbage day. Otherwise, your garbage is going to smell really bad. Um, And speaking of smell, your clams should have a really nice briny ocean scent to them. So let your nose guide you. 
Don't cinch your plastic bag over the clams or they'll suffocate. They need air to breathe. Here's another thing about live clams. All live clams in the shell are required by law to have a tag. That tag has information about the product and the, and the processor. Um, there will be a harvest date on the tag too. So ask the person behind the fish counter if you don't see a tag, if you want that information, just so you have it for reference if you need. Or if you want to be like a seafood geek like me, you know, you could talk about it and then say, hey, this is where my clams were harvested. Now, when you get your clams home, and I'm talking about the live clams now, you want to store them in a colander in the coldest part of the refrigerator, which generally means the back of the fridge. Set the colander in a bowl to catch any drip from the clams. You don't need ice in that bowl. Um, in fact, when I was at the wholesale distributor, we didn't um, we didn't store our clams on ice. We stored them in a in a cold room that you know, unlike fish, where you put them on ice. So. You don't need ice um, for your clams. Um, you do want to put a wet paper, excuse me, you want to put a wet paper towel over the top so the clams don't dry out. And then you want to cook the clams the same day or the next. You'll need to clean your live clams before you cook them. So you need a stiff brush and some water. And there's a Martha Stewart video in the show notes, so check that out. Now, what can you make with clams? Oh my gosh, the opportunities are endless, right? So clams casino comes to mind. You can do clam crostini, which means you're actually just using the meat for the clam crostini. You can steam clams. You can grill clams. They're perfect in soups and chowders. My favorite go-to clam recipe is New England clam chowder. Follow the link to my food blog for that. Now, since 90% of the clams on the market are farmed, what about the other 10%? So here's a quick note about wild clams. The status of wild clam population is unknown in all locations, but there's no evidence of overfishing occurring. If you live near the coast and you can go forage for your own little baby clams in the sand, have at it and enjoy. Okay, all this talk of clams makes me really hungry. I'd love it if you shared your favorite clam recipe with me and my listeners. Send me an email at maureenseaberry at gmail.com or hit me up on Facebook and Twitter. You know, before we move on to climate change, there are two additional clam things I want to talk with you about. Did you know that Pacific giant clams are a possible solution for an alternative energy resource? To give you some perspective, let's talk about how big a giant clam is. So these gorgeous iridescent clams reach up to four feet in length and can weigh up to 500 pounds. That's nuts, isn't it? Uh, they live on coral reefs in the South Pacific and Indian Oceans for up to 100 years. And once they're secured to the coral, they never move again. How cool is that? According to Nat Geo, no two giant clams have the same coloration. So if you get a chance, go to the Google, search for Pacific giant clams, and you'll see what I'm talking about. They're just absolutely stunning. Back to the energy solution. Giant clams have a unique space-saving system that harvests energy from alga. Work is being done in the labs at the University of Pennsylvania and NASA to try to replicate this process. There's so much more work on the horizon for this behemoth clam. And you can find out more by following the links in the show notes. The second thing I want to mention about clams, um, it has to do with the composition of clams and ocean acidification, which I'm just going to briefly talk about here. Um, ocean acidification is something that is caused by human activities that generate carbon dioxide, like 
driving our cars, um, industrial facilities, that kind of thing. And since the ocean is a giant sponge, it sucks up about 30% of that carbon dioxide, according to marine scientist Dr. Tessa Hill from UC Davis. Now, I met Dr. Hill at the Sustainable Foods Institute in 2013 when I was out at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And she and her work found that clams and other shellfish were showing signs of distress when faced with rising water temperatures and, yep, ocean acidification. What happens to them when there's too much acid in the water is they have a difficult time generating their shell composition, so it leaves them with a weaker shell, smaller meat, possibly leaving them susceptible to predators. Now, some clams and shellfish will adapt to the new normal, and some will not. Did you read um, The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert? Anyway, she also clarifies that ocean acidification and um, this high carbon dioxide that we're spewing into the atmosphere is going to affect our marine environment. There's going to be some winners, which will be urchins, shrimp, lobster, crab, think all the crustaceans. And the losers are going to be the shellfish and the bivalves, mussels, oysters, and clams, those three sustainable seafood species that we need to help sustain the protein needs of a growing global population And because they're filter feeders, they actually leave the water in much better shape than before they got there. So now there there is some good news here about all this. Dr. Hill's work in the lab and in the ocean with Hog Island Oyster at Tomales Bay, California has shown promise. The next step with this work in action is policymakers and industry. And we need to get all of this information to them and move forward with some legislation because it's really a given that we need a carbon diet. And if we reduce CO2, given the chance, these organisms can respond and adapt. So that conversation takes us right into the C is for climate change part of the program. Since climate change is such a large topic with many avenues to explore, I'm going to narrow the lens down to water. It's no secret that all living beings need water to survive. We could go for weeks without food. Although, some days, I wish my stomach and brain would recognize that. But we can only go a few days without water. The bond we have with water is intrinsically linked to our health, lives, and livelihoods. The adult human body is made up of about 65% of water. 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water and the oceans hold about 96.5% of that water, and only 2.5-3% of that is fresh water. There's only 1% of water that's drinkable. Think about this. Have you considered what you would be willing to do for your family if there was a water shortage? I had to think about that because I got a letter in the mail from the city of Madisonville, where I live, they found TTHM in the drinking water. And now the 82 parts per billion were nothing to be concerned about. If the parts per billion where water is safe to drink is 80 parts per billion. But so I got a little bit nervous thinking about Flint, Michigan. And um, I put some more reading material in the show notes about Flint, Michigan. But did you know that they could not drink water for two years? Two years, you guys. God, that's just crazy. Anyway, so I had a little hissy fit about where my water came from. And um, it comes from a very reliable source. The Green River is a beautiful, clean resource here. So the reason we had too much TTHM in the water was we had a super long summer and some organic matter got 
um, introduced into the water system. So um, the government's working on that, according to the letter. And I want to believe them. But, you know, anything could happen now. Look what happened in this past election. So back to my question. And what will happen when water runs out and we have a water war? So here's something. Since the Earth is made up of 70% of water, why can't we clean up the ocean water and make drinking water? Well, for one, desalinization plants are not yet as sustainable as they could be. And some people say desalination or desalinization. So you'll hear me use both words. They mean the same thing. Desalination is the process of removing salt and minerals from ocean water, right? So it's either done in a thermal plant, which requires a large amount of energy. And think back to that ocean acidification I mentioned a few minutes ago about the clams. Or it's where seawater is forced through a semi-permeable membrane to remove the salt. And so what becomes of the salty discharge? Well, it gets dumped back into estuaries or willy-nilly in the high seas. Not a good thing. Plus, it's not just salt water getting pumped through these screens. It's marine life and plankton. If all we needed was a giant screen, there would be no plastic pollution in the ocean. You know, it's not like desalination plants aren't already in operation. Some 13,000 desalination plants already supply fresh water in 120 nations, primarily in the Middle East, North Africa, and the Caribbean. There are about 300 desalination plants in the United States, primarily in Florida, 120 in Florida, and less than 20, in, excuse me, and less than 40 each in Texas and California. Although some additional plants are being planned for the coast of California in the coming years. Some drought-stricken and heavily populated areas can't rely on those methods. Here in the United States, we may find out sooner than later how we will fare without safe and plentiful drinking water. The Ogallala Aquifer, the High Plains Aquifer System, that provides fresh water for roughly one-fifth of the wheat, corn, and cattle and cotton in the United States, is in decline. Worth repeating, the Ogallala Aquifer is in decline. The reason? Groundwater is being discharged at a higher rate than it is being replenished. Remember, we have had a drought. And this aquifer depletion is not restricted to the United States. India, Pakistan, Mexico, and the Middle East are also in trouble with aquifer depletion. And the biggest problem with a depleted aquifer is they can take up to 6,000 years to replenish fully. What do we do right now? to preserve and conserve. Well, some present-day solutions are crop rotation and drip irrigation, super successful. Genetic crops, super controversial, do require less water and, in fact, are already being tested and planted in fields in the United States. With our growing global population expected to exceed 9 billion people by mid-century, you can see that there's a huge potential water war for future generations. And you know, 2050 is really not that far away. Beyond that though, try not to get too freaked out. But don't get too comfy either. The United States is already dealing with drought and water shortages. We know that. Like look to California, now in its sixth straight year of drought. Head to southwest Arizona, where the Colorado River is drying up and the term mega drought already in circulation. Continue traveling across the Great Plains and the Midwest, nine states, where the extreme drought conditions in the last 50 years are affecting the production of corn and soy, which is three quarters of the world's production. Oh, and livestock too, 
Okay, let's not forget that. Dry riverbeds are becoming a common sight. Barges need to lighten their loads on the Mississippi. I mean, really, think about a gallon of water costing the same or more than a gallon of gasoline. Water may soon become a commodity. So what actions can you take today? Turn off the water faucet when you're brushing your teeth. You don't still do that, right? Anyway, um, <laughs> if you do, stop, stop it, right? Okay, install low-flow shower heads and toilets. Take shorter, cooler showers. Think less than five minutes. A five-minute shower can use up to 25 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. How about this? Here's a good one. Plant drought-tolerant gardens. Now, I'll have more on that in X is for Xeriscape later this year. If you need a little inspiration today, check out the Pinterest link in the show notes. Man, there's some beautiful drought-tolerant garden ideas there. Wow, that was a lot to digest. But I just wanted to make you aware, bring some stuff to the table. Let's see where you go with it. So what do you think? Did I miss something? You want to share something that you know, a cool clam recipe, or maybe a cool clam fact that you have? That would be terrific. Send that along. Shoot me an email. Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter. Hashtag GFBO. And that's it for this episode of Greenfish Blue Ocean. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play so you don't miss an episode. And remember, check out the show notes for clam recipes and additional reading. Next up, D is for dogfish and discards. Have a great two weeks, and thanks for listening to Greenfish Blue Oceans.